I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Red Jasmine presents Cement Factory Number 9, Tales of a Hanoi Bookshop by Mary Ryan. Narrated by Mary Jane Wells. Cement Factory Number 9 is available for free download accessible on iTunes and via acast.com, an exciting new platform featuring podcasts with pictures, and for purchase on amazon.com. Part 1 Chapter 1 Flood A cascade poured softly down the stairs, flooding the bookshop. Water oozed through the ceiling from the bedroom above, transforming the shop into a misty greenhouse. I had finally woken, panicked, raced downstairs, sloshed back upstairs. Where should I start? And when do I get electrocuted? I bucketed gallons from the balcony onto the street and swept even more from the bookshop. All night I sluiced, mopped, washed and dried, throwing out only a few shelves of drenched books. When morning arrived apart from finding frazzled and damp counter-staff, early customers were oblivious to the deluge. The natural enemies of a bookshop are a flood or a fire. Not exactly an auspicious beginning to the second night in my new abode. While I'd slept, a leaf had covered the too small drain on my balcony during the monsoon, and water had begun quietly seeping under the door, flooding both the bedroom above and the bookshop below. Naively, my Faustian plan had been that the bookshop would run itself, and with living and office space upstairs, I could begin my new life as a consultant. However, only months after I moved in, the deities upped the ante and followed the flood with severe acute respiratory syndrome, better known as SARS. Hot on its heels came avian influenza. I was holed up in central Hanoi, a stone's throw from the epicentre of the plagues for the new millennium. What on earth had I done? The fear of a widespread SARS outbreak meant a few things. The city was deserted of foreigners. There were no customers. There was staff to pay and books to buy. The melancholy only deepened with sporadic visits from my capricious landlady. Her arrival never boded well. I contemplated how much longer the bookshop could last – and more especially how the hunkered-down expats could be ignited into a passion for reading something meatier than the auto-chinglish movie plot from the back of a pirated DVD cover. A chance meltdown of the city's cable TV network had supplied a few new customers, but windfalls like that couldn't be orchestrated every week. Well, probably they could. This was Hanoi, after all. Cement Factory Number 9 was named to confuse officialdom, the bane of my life. There were a plethora of rules applying in a place where a fractured internet had only just arrived, and all other conventional sources of information were strictly controlled.
Regulating cultural material was broad, a little vague, generally pointless and basically unenforceable, but it provided great latitude for slimy officials inventing requirements on an as-needed basis. It was a fast education in pseudo-censorship. Hanoi, like other far-off exotic places, is littered with tourists secretly harbouring the inevitable bar fantasy, occasionally a bookshop fantasy, or, for the truly money-squandering, a restaurant fantasy. For the brave, a holiday sometimes turned into a more permanent relocation. I wasn't brave. I just wanted to rustle up some consultancy work. In the days before e-books vaporised the print market, the paper variety was still the sought-after currency. I found myself battling morality police, who liked moving the goalposts, and fighting book thugs undercutting the business by papering Vietnam with counterfeit Tom Clancy's and photocopies of The Sorrow of War. Some of their touts even tried to hijack my few customers by planting themselves and their bag of phony lonely planets in the shop's doorway. A low blow. Before it blew away, in another monsoon, a 15-metre banner advertised BOOK in giant letters visible the length of the street. Unknowingly, I'd engaged a printer with plural issues. Hey, but what a book it was. The bookshop was located in a small lane, badly sited in the French Quarter, away from the main tourist hubs. But thankfully, die-hard readers were happy to make the trek south of Huan Kiem Lake to join customers comprising expats and tourists, but at that time, only a few Vietnamese. Expats in Hanoi were often artists, writers and filmmakers. Sometimes there was not much to show in terms of their actual art, writing or films, but beer was cheap and just walking out the door guaranteed each day to be more bizarre than the last. The lack of Vietnamese clientele was mostly because the books were usually too expensive for local salaries and not many Vietnamese were sufficiently adept in English in those days to read an English novel and most, of course, weren't familiar with foreign authors. However, another reason was that Vietnamese people were quietly discouraged from coming to the imperialist running dog bookshop, not openly, but the locals got the message. Strangely, the Vietnamese regulars who ignored this dictum craved books about accounting or romance. Hanoi remains ripe for an amortising romance novel, should anyone be interested. Bookshops anywhere else generally order stock from publishing warehouses, perhaps buy pallets of remainders, and have a rolling stock on the floor. Orders are placed, books arrive within a few days, and any unsold stock can generally be returned after a few months to be remaindered by the publishers. Not so in this far-flung business. Vietnam is a strange, fascinating and endlessly curious place. While the government owned several bookshops, stocked with unsaleable English titles, the entire country was without a genuine private English bookshop, save for a few items sold at the gift shops of the larger hotels. There was, however, a mountain of English-language photocopy books, churned out on the quiet, after hours, and distributed by a nasty book mafia with young street kids recruited to flog the counterfeit fodder to tourists. For better or worse... The cement factory sold no counterfeits or contraband, and we paid the price. 
the bookshop had the help of a young woman who was able to navigate the bureaucracy and keep the shop open despite the best efforts of mediocre bureaucrats. She was also very beautiful, which may have predisposed her to more frequent interviews and casual cups of tea with officialdom than entirely necessary. And while she and the bookshop received a lot of unwanted attention, the illegal vendors plied their trade in all the tourist areas without concern, presumably as long as envelopes continued to be delivered. The security detail who kept a close eye on our subversive activities were endlessly concerned, wanting us to explain, among other things, why so many journalists visited the bookshop. The idea that journalists might enjoy reading must not have occurred to them. Perhaps they also didn't understand why we kept no records on how many plumbers, lace makers or brain surgeons were also customers. At that time, Vietnam was in transition and a household of Europeans, Americans and other Asians might possibly have the corresponding number of security police assigned to each nationality, lurking intermittently in the shadows outside, keeping inaccurate tabs on the dreaded foreigners. I had become too friendly with my assigned officers, and they had taken to making random visits for cups of lethal green tea in my office, and helping themselves to an impromptu English lesson in air-conditioned comfort. I eventually brought these drawn-out visits to an end by extracting their cell phone numbers and then pestering them over several days for help with inane issues, a noisy neighbour, a constant in Hanoi, a screaming cat, a pothole. Slightly bewildered, after all, it was their job to harass me, their visits ended as abruptly as they had started. Instead, they took up an infrequent watch on the pavement opposite, at the table of the tea lady. Observing, smoking, taking photos, drinking tea, making notes, playing cards. The tea lady was, of course, a double agent, and confided as much disinformation to me as she did to them. While the officials settled down after a couple of years, no doubt due to acute boredom, there remained accusations in dour tones that they knew we were selling prohibited material, Bibles and pornography. Did they think these sales might have been to the same customers? More confounding to them was that we were doing everything above board and sold nothing we shouldn't. Complying with the law caused us no end of problems. No one else in town was doing anything honestly, Shimmying around the rules was a national sport. It was very confusing. The bookshop must have been up to something. After all, dodgy was a way of life and business in Hanoi. The books were ordered from abroad. The suppliers and publishers were very generous in helping a tiny shop that wasn't exactly able to move thousands of their titles. I suspect they were mildly intrigued with the hoops to leap through, to introduce Margaret Atwood, David Sedaris and Irving Welsh to a mostly indifferent public. Three or four times a year before ordering from overseas, a list was compiled of around 600 to 800 books and the titles were methodically translated into Vietnamese. Six copies of the list were delivered to the keepers of public morals for presumably six different officers to decide whether the title of the latest Patricia Cornwell was fit for general consumption. The arbitrators of decency were a little vague on what should be censored 
as they wouldn't identify what was or wasn't prohibited. Decisions were nonsensically based on the book's title and excluded any review whatsoever of content. Eventually, through trial and error, it was determined that any book remotely connected to Vietnam or written by a Vietnamese author or with a Vietnamese word in the title, were absolutely off-limits. Books that were also off-limits were anything considered superstitious. This included horoscopes and religious books, and any book inciting social derision, a.k.a. anything. They also weren't crazy about cookbooks, for some reason. To add insult to injury, counterfeit editions of what we weren't allowed to sell could be found everywhere, Even the government bookshop maintained a dusty pile of Bibles. The law was an ass. More adjustments to the business plan. Elsewhere, ordering books can be concluded in a day. In Hanoi, the censorship review took about two months for an import certificate to be issued. We always added a couple of obvious titles to be crossed out, rather than risk the red pen being scraped through a bestseller. Books that were prohibited were highlighted on the import certificate without explanation. But with the certificate safely in our grasp, so began the convoluted process to ensure Jeanette Winterson, Pico Ayer, Doris Lessing and Neil Stevenson made it to the shelves. Translations of the titles into Vietnamese didn't have to be too accurate as long as the books complied with the vagaries learnt by experience. This task was enthusiastically done by one of the staff, along with some colourful reinterpretations. Penguin's History of the 20th Century somehow became 20 Centuries of the History of Penguins. No one working in the shop thought this book was an odd addition. But then the general consensus was that all foreigners were so strange that it was quite likely that Hanoi harboured a nest of foreign penguin fanatics. Another eight weeks would pass before around half of the ordered books arrived. The weeks wasted beforehand on fake censorship meant the warehouse abroad would be out of stock of many of the requested books. The order could not be backfilled as those titles hadn't received prior approval and would be confiscated on arrival in Hanoi. Coincidentally, when this sometimes happened, these books would mysteriously make their way to the book mafia, where thousands of counterfeits would hit the streets up and down the country. That was learnt the hard way. Once landed in Hanoi, a final check of the cargo made sure the cover art was not offensive. With any luck, the morality police would find copies with bare breasts gracing the cover. A bare ass and or agricultural implements seemed to pass muster. We were required to supply cans of spray paint and daub all the offensive covers before the books would be released by censors. Even books featuring works of art, such as the Venus de Milo, or similar images of naked statues, had their offending bits smeared out. Breasts, ironically, were not suitable for children, or anyone else. However, in magnificent irony, we rapidly discovered spray-painting books factored as a key selling point – The defaced books literally flew off the shelves. Not underestimating the power of a dinner party anecdote, I immediately commissioned a rubber stamp for the flyleaf to explain the censorship. Books were liberally blasted in silver, gold or bronze, depending on its presumed level of offence. A pyrrhic victory over a bureaucracy with an irritable bowel and no sense of humour.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 